0: The two passages that Derek just read for us from Ezra chapter 1 and Haggai chapter 1 are really an ironic pair. In Ezra, we have the account of a pagan king saying, I want the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And in Haggai, we have God rebuking the Jews who went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple For not doing it. God says, you say that the time has not come to rebuild the temple. A pagan king wants it built, and the Jews don't want to do it. Truth is often stranger than fiction, and as we look at the book of Haggai, we're going to be exploring why the Jews didn't want to finish task. Now if you've looked at the book of Haggai you probably have recognized that it's a very very short book. I think it's the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Only Obadiah as far as I know is shorter. You may be wondering why we're going to devote six Sundays to the study of such a short book. My answer is that although Haggai's prophecy is brief It's kind of like a point in Old Testament history where a bunch of the different strands of God's working tie together in a very interesting way. And I want us to see how all those lines of his plan cross and what they develop into. Haggai first spoke the four messages that are contained in his book in the year 520 B.C., He was speaking to a small group of Jews in Jerusalem. There were about 42,000 of them. They were a mere handful of what were probably millions of Jews alive at the time, most of whom remained in the Persian Empire when the Persians conquered it from the Babylonians who had conquered it from the Assyrians. There were very few Jews actually living in Israel. These Jews to whom Haggai spoke had traveled to Jerusalem about 18 years earlier in the year 538 with high hopes of rebuilding God's temple. But those hopes had been dashed. They had laid the foundation for the temple, but they did little more. Hostile neighbors had forced them to stop the work after only two years Now 16 years had passed since they had done any work and these Jewish returnees were eking out a meager living, rebuilding their homes, trying to make their farms work, living in the ruins of Jerusalem. The unfinished foundation of the temple stood like a mocking monument to their failure. And I suspect that they all felt discouraged, afraid, and probably foolish. Now in a week or two, we'll turn our attention specifically to the problems that they faced and the discussion of them in the book of Haggai. But what I want to do this morning is to spend our time exploring the long-term sequence of events that led up to the situation to which Haggai spoke. We're going to go all the way back in Israel's history to the Exodus, and then work our way forward. I think you'll find the journey interesting. Let's pray. Father, we look to you to give us clarity of thought as we go through a large sweep of what happened to the nation of Israel. Help us by your spirit to see that these were not just random events, but the working out of your sovereign plan. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen. What I really want us to get today is a historical and if you will, a theological perspective on the events of the Old Testament. Now, believers have a number of different attitudes toward the Old Testament. Some consider it largely irrelevant and they say, well, we're New Testament Christians. What do we need the Old Testament for? Some believers love limited portions of the Old Testament. Genesis, the story of the Exodus, the Psalms, perhaps the portions of the prophets that predict the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some believers have a great attraction to the Old Testament, but it still remains dark and mysterious, like the unlit corners of your grandmother's attic. I think one of the keys to gaining... A love for all the Old Testament is to have a historical perspective that ties together the events, the prophecies, the Psalms in a cohesive way. I see three values to gaining that kind of a perspective. The first one is this, and it's very simple. Having a historical perspective on the Old Testament allows us to place each of the books within the sequence of the events, knowing when the book that you're reading fits into that sequence will give you a much greater and deeper understanding of what that book is about. Now, the second thing that a historical perspective on the Old Testament does is that it allows us to see cause and effect in work. at work. Cause and effect is the key to everything that happens. And if you know what happened first... And you know what followed, and you don't get them mixed up. You can see how one thing leads to another. And that makes our understanding much deeper. Now, The last value that I see to a historical perspective on the Old Testament is that it allows us to discern the hand of God at work. You remember studying history in grammar school? It'd make us remember all these dates The dates didn't really mean anything because at least when I first started studying history, they didn't say, this happened and that affected that and that affected that. But if we gain that kind of a perspective on the history of the Old Testament, we can begin to see God's hand at work and it won't just look like a jumble of chaotic, random events. Now, in order to build the perspective that I'd like us to build I want to direct your attention now. Let's see if this works. Is it going to work? Is anything happening up there? Hold on. There we go. To the screen behind me. That's funny. I don't see what you see, but I think it's going to work. (laughs) Okay. What we have up here is a jumble of dates. Okay? (laughs) they're not particularly interesting as they stand. But we're going to hang events on these dates, and then later we're going to go back and look at how these events fit into God's plan. Okay, The first event on our timeline is the Exodus. God led the Israelites out of Egypt under Moses in the year 1446 B.C., They spent about 40 years wandering in the desert for various reasons. And then in 1406, Moses led the Israelites up to the east bank of the Jordan River, and he gave them three messages that are recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. The next day, God took Moses to heaven, and the Israelites undertook the conquest of the promised land, and that took place and carried on until about 1350 B.C. Now, from 1350 B.C. until 1051 B.C. was the time that we call the period of the judges. It was a period characterized by both peace and war, by order and chaos, That period ended in the year 1051. I could pull out my handy-dandy laser here. That's bright, isn't it? Um, When God granted Israel's request for a king like the kings of the nations. We next come... Come on, there we are. Did I go too far? No. We next come to the time that we call the United Monarchy here, the time of the United Kingdom of Israel. From 931, I'm sorry, from 1051 until 931, just 120 years, we had three kings reigning over Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. Each one reigned for 40 years. Saul began the kingdom. David took it, he consolidated, he built it into something great and he passed it on to his son and Solomon used the wealth and power that David had amassed to build a great temple for God. Now, in the year 931, Solomon died. His son Rehoboam was unable to maintain the unity of the 12 tribes And very shortly after he became king, the nation split. And we now have ten tribes in the north. And that area came to be known as Israel. And it's confusing when you read the Old Testament because sometimes the word Israel means the northern part of the kingdom and sometimes it means everybody. The southern portion of the kingdom that did not rebel came to be known as Judah. By the way, that's why we call Jews Jews today, after the kingdom of Judah, if you ever wondered. Okay, now what happens next? In 722, the Assyrians under King Shalmaneser conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They deported most of the Jews who lived in that kingdom. They took them to other portions of their empire. They brought in people from other parts of the empire and they settled them in the northern kingdom of Israel. And they did that because they knew that if you put people in a place that they didn't know, they were much less likely to rebel. Those people who were brought in intermarried with some of the Jews who remained behind and their descendants are the people who were known as the Samaritans during the time of Jesus's ministry. Now the southern kingdom of Judah survived a little bit longer But in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the army of the Babylonians placed Jerusalem under siege. It held out for two years. After two years, they couldn't defend themselves anymore. They were starving. The Babylonians broke through the wall. They perforated the wall in a number of places so the city couldn't defend itself They burned the temple to the ground after looting it, and they took those who survived the invasion to Babylon, where they lived in exile. No king has ever reigned in Jerusalem since the year 586 BC. Now, those are the facts. Those are the facts of Israel's history. Let me add just a little bit more. In 538, Zerubbabel led a group of Jews to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. In 458, come on, Ezra led a group of Israelites. That's backwards. I got that backwards. Yeah, Tom knows what I did wrong. Ezra led a group of people, I'm sorry, Ezra went back to lead the people in spiritual revival, and in 444, Nehemiah went back to rebuild the city wall. That's backwards, okay? By the way, if you're trying to remember this, just remember Zen, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. This history will become more familiar to you later. I'll correct that for next week. Okay, well, those are the facts, Dates by themselves are stupid things. Even facts by themselves are stupid things unless you can see the relationships between them, the way that one thing causes another. And what I want to do for the rest of our time is to spend some time building that structure of cause and effect. To get to get a handle on the why of the things that happened to Israel, we need to back up and consider the promises and the warnings that God had made to the nation of Israel as a whole. Now, we find those promises and warnings in what are often called the four biblical covenants. Okay, let's see. The first biblical covenant was made around the year 1900 BC. That's way back off of the chart. It was made by God with Abraham, who at the time was named Abram, the second covenant, which is often called the Palestinian Covenant, it's also called the Land Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. And by the way, that's named after Moses, not the tiles in your bathroom. That was made in 1406. I used to be confused about that. I'm embarrassed to say. Okay, The third covenant was made by God with King David around the year 900 that's the Davidic covenant, and the fourth covenant, which we call the New Covenant, was made around the year 586 B.C., just before the city of Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. Now, two of these covenants are particularly important for our understanding of the history of the nation of Israel, and those are the Abrahamic and Palestinian covenants. So I want to consider them a little bit right now. If you would, turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at the Abrahamic covenant, which is really the foundational covenant of all of them. Listen as I read Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now let's think a little bit about what God promises to Abraham here. He starts by giving Abraham a command. He says, leave your home and go to the place Where I will take you. Now, Abram doesn't know what the destination is, but he goes, trusting God. Notice that God doesn't say, if you obey, I will do these things. He simply says, go, and I will do these things for you. The point that I want to make is that the things that God promises to Abraham here are unconditional promises. They are things that God says, I will do. And nothing is going to stop God from doing them. Now, God promises to Abram three things, and we could call them, as many do, a land, a seed, and a blessing. First, he promises to take Abram to a special land. Now, at this point, God does not tell Abram what the boundaries of that land will be. But in Genesis 15, he does, And Abram will discover that the land that God is giving to him and his descendants includes not only what we consider to be the modern state of Israel, but much of the land of Syria and Jordan going all the way over to the Euphrates River. It's a very large parcel of land. Now secondly, God promises Abram a seed. He promises to make him a great nation. I believe Abram was 88 years old at this time and his wife was close to his age. They were past childbearing age. They had no kids. And God says, yet I am going to make you into a great nation. You will have a child. Now, Abram didn't know many more of the details, but God did say that he would do that for him. Now, finally, oh, by the way, we know how that worked out, don't we? The Jews the Israelites, whatever you want to call them, are all descendants of the son that God would one day give to Abraham, and that would be Isaac. Now, the third thing that God promises to Abram is that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Now, God fulfilled this promise in sending his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be the savior of the world. Now, God promises to Abraham one last thing, protection, divine protection for himself and his descendants. And history, and not just Old Testament history, has demonstrated the truth of that promise, hasn't it? How many times have people tried to exterminate the Jews and failed? God has protected his people, Israel, And he has brought destruction upon those who have tried to destroy them. And I think it's important for us at this point in history to keep that in mind. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is foundational for God's dealings with Israel. It guarantees that Israel will never be exterminated. It guarantees that her land will always be hers by divine decree. From the Abrahamic covenant, we know that ultimately Israel will one day return to her land under the blessing and protection of God. And that day is still future, by the way. It wasn't fulfilled in 1948. That day is still coming. Now next we come to the Palestinian covenant. Where's my laser? This one up here. As I said earlier, the Palestinian covenant is sometimes called the land covenant or the Mosaic Covenant, we'll stick with the term Palestinian Covenant. The name comes from the fact that God made this covenant with the Israelites just before they entered into the promised land, which we commonly call Palestine. The key idea in the Palestinian Covenant is that it lays out God's rules for the Israelites regarding how, and when they will be allowed to enjoy the land, which is their possession forever, according to the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the Palestinian covenant is very long. We don't have time to read it. If you want to later, you can read a short form of it in Leviticus chapter 26, which is where God first revealed it, and the longer form in Deuteronomy chapters 28 Through 30. I'm going to summarize it for you, but before I summarize it, I need to give you some terminology. Because this covenant contains both conditional and unconditional provisions. Now a conditional provision contains the word if. The idea is something like, if you do this, I will do this. Now, an unconditional provision doesn't contain the word if. An unconditional provision is, in modern terminology, simply a promise. Now, the conditional provisions of the Palestinian covenant are quite simple. Let me try to paraphrase them, them for you, speaking as if I were God speaking to Israel. You are about to enter the land that I have given you by eternal deed. It's your possession forever. No one else will ever have ownership rights over it. However, I as God retain the right to determine whether or not you will enjoy living in the land at any given point in time. If you walk faithfully with me, If you obey my law, if you worship me alone, I will bless you in your land. I'll send you rain. I'll make your crops grow. I'll make your herds increase. I'll make your wives fertile, and I'll make your children beautiful and strong and healthy. I'll make you wealthy and powerful. I will make you the dominant Political power in your area, and I will give you authority over your neighbors. But if you're unfaithful to me, beware. If you neglect my law, if you worship other gods, I will curse you in your land. I will send you drought. I'll cause your crops to fail. I'll make your herds shrink. I'll make your wives miscarry. I'll send the locusts. I'll make you poor. I'll cause your neighbors to oppress you, to tax you, and to dominate you. And if you continue in disobedience, eventually I will send in outsiders who will attack you, besiege your cities, Conquer you and deport you to lands which you do not know. And you will be expelled from the land which is your own. Those are the conditional provisions of the Palestinian covenant. But there's an unconditional portion of the covenant, and that in particular is found in Deuteronomy chapter 30 in the first 10 verses. Again, let me summarize that for you because of time. In that portion of the covenant, God God goes beyond saying, if you do this, I will do this, and he moves into what is essentially prophecy. He says, you will fall into idolatry and you will experience the worst curses of the covenant. You will be kicked out of your land by me. But one day, every one of you, every last one of you, will come to your senses. You will realize that you have sinned against me. You will turn back to me and in that day, I will gather you from wherever you are in the world and I will bring you back to your land. You see, the unconditional portion of the Palestinian covenant amounts to a promise. It is a promise that one day, when they repent, God will restore them to their land to live under his blessing, under his protection, and they will never be expelled from their land again. The fulfillment of that promise is still in the future. It will be fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at his second coming to set up his millennial kingdom. Now, I want you to make sure that you get what I'm going to say next. If you understand the Abrahamic and Palestinian covenants, the history of Old Testament Israel stops being just a chaotic series of good and bad events. It becomes instead a purposeful and powerful demonstration of God's efforts to discipline and train his people to be faithful to him and to his law. And don't forget that in the New Testament, we are reminded that the things that happened to them were recorded for our benefit. So let's go back over now, the history of Old Testament Israel, and see how this works. We start our journey At the Exodus. Keep in mind that when the Exodus occurred, it was already 500 years after God had given the Abrahamic covenant. God took the Israelites out of Egypt. He took them to Mount Horeb, which we also call Mount Sinai. He gave them there the law, and He revealed to them the Palestinian covenant for the first time. Now Moses recorded the law and that first giving of the Palestinian covenant in the book of Leviticus, probably around the year 1444 because they were at Mount Horeb for about two years. Now the Lord was ready to take the people into the promised land and he led them up to Kadesh Barnea and he said, I will give you victory. Ten spies went out to check it out. They came back. I'm sorry, 12 spies went out all of them but two, said, "Uh uh-uh, we can't do it. And the Israelites rebelled. And God said, because you are unwilling to trust me, because you don't have confidence in me to give you victory over those peoples, every one of you who is 20 years old or older will wander in the desert and die before I give you a second chance to go into the land. Now the year 1406 arrived, that's right about there, 40 years after they had come out of Egypt. In the year 1406, everybody who had been 20 years old or older at the time of the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea was now dead, except for Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. God led the Israelites up to the east bank of the Jordan River. Moses gave three more sermons on the law and in particular laying out the details of how God would work with the Israelites when they entered the land. That is, as we said earlier, the Palestinian covenant, Deuteronomy 28 through 30. Now once Moses had given those three addresses, God took him up into the mountains and he took him Home to heaven. This new generation, this second generation that had grown up in the desert was more obedient than the earlier generation that had rebelled at Kadesh Barnea. They crossed the Jordan, they trusted God, and they set out in conquest. They undertook the task of driving out and, yes, exterminating the Canaanites. By the time when Joshua died in the year 1350, the Israelites controlled most of Canaan. There were still some small pockets of Canaanites left behind, however. Now, humanly speaking, these small pockets of people were left behind because the Israelites had not done their job fully. But God gives us his perspective on that in Judges chapter 2. You can look this up later if you want to. God says, I kept those few people in the land so that I could use them to test you and discipline you. And so life in the Promised Land began formally in 1350 at the end of the time of the judges. And it was then that the provisions of the Palestinian covenant came into effect. So now we come to the time of the Judges. If you see, if you look up here, you can see that that lasted from 1350 to 1051, almost 300 years. Think about what you know about life during the time of the Judges in terms of the Palestinian Covenant. What do you think of when you think of the book of Judges? Don't you think of this endless cycle? Disobedience, judgment, crying out to God, God raises a deliverer. The Israelites are delivered, and then they enjoy a time of peace until the next period of disobedience begins. What would God do when the Israelites turned away from him, began to worship other gods? He would send in outsiders, the Moabites, the Midianites, the Philistines, whoever it might be, to attack them. The Israelites would say, uh-oh, we've sinned, They would repent, they would cry out to God, and God would send a deliverer. Ehud, Barak, Gideon, Tohu, I'm sorry, Tola, Samson are just some of them. Now, if you think about that time period in terms of the Palestinian covenant, you can see that what was happening was that God was doing what he said he would do the Israelites would fall into spiritual unfaithfulness and he would punish them in concrete ways involving drought or harassment by their enemies. When they would cry out in repentance, he would send someone in to rescue them from their enemies. But the Israelites were slow to learn, weren't they? It just happened over and over again. Even after 300 years of this cycle, they still haven't got the point. They should have realized that their problem was their own behavior and that God was doing exactly what he said he would do. They should have realized that it was their covenant with God that made them different from their neighbors. But they didn't get it. They came up with their own solution, and it shows that they didn't realize how special they were. They said to God, we need a king like the kings of the other nations. Well, God wasn't pleased, but what did he do? He gave them Saul. Saul was the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the ancient world. He was a head taller than everybody else. He was handsome. He was powerful. He was physically courageous. The Israelites thought that with him as their king, they would have no more problems. What they didn't realize was that the only protection they needed was God himself. And by relying on Saul, in a sense, they cut themselves off from that protection. Well, with Saul coming to the throne in 1051, we move into the time of the United Monarchy or the Kingdom of Israel. We have three kings, as we said earlier, for 40 years each. Let's just go through their reigns very quickly. You don't have to say much about Saul, do you? He was basically an ungodly king. And because he didn't follow God, the nation didn't follow God, and the nation experienced judgment after judgment under him. But then David came to the throne David, despite his many failings, was a godly king. And for the most part, he led the nation in following the true God very faithfully. And God blessed the socks off of them during David's reign. Think about it. In the space of a single generation, Israel was transformed from an unknown, fourth-rate, no-account nation into the most powerful empire of that part of the world. Under God's blessing, the nation's population grew swiftly. Their territory expanded. The nation collected enormous amounts of gold and silver and precious stones and other wealth, all of which would be used by Solomon in building God's temple. David wasn't perfect, but when he fell into sin and when he was rebuked, David repented. When David fell into sin and God judged him, the nation as a whole suffered. And when David turned back to God, the nation as a whole was restored. Well, next we come to Solomon. Solomon, I think, is the most tragic of the three kings because he started so well and ended so poorly. In the early days of his reign, Solomon loved the Lord God of Israel, and he served him only. The wealth, the fame, and the power of his empire continued to grow. He built a glorious temple for God. By the way, that's the temple that the Babylonians would later destroy. And God was greatly pleased with Solomon. But even on the day that the temple was finished and Solomon gave his prayer of dedication for that temple, God warned him. He said, if you turn aside to to false gods, don't think you'll get away with it. I will judge you. And as Solomon grew older, that is just what he began to do. And by the end of his life, Solomon was deeply involved in idolatry. Now, because of his love for David, God postponed the judgment That was due for Solomon's sin until after Solomon died. Solomon's son Rehoboam came to the throne in 931. He attempted to consolidate the power of the entire kingdom under himself, but the northern kingdom rebelled. And you know the story of the divided monarchy. What happened? The northern kingdom had an unbroken string of ungodly kings and God's patience with them ran out in 722 when the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom and deported them it was not a natural occurrence it was not just the way things happen in the world it was God acting according to his promise interestingly when the Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom in 722 they couldn't conquer the southern kingdom. You know why? Because God was protecting them because the southern kingdom was still faithful to him. They attacked again in 701 and they couldn't succeed. But then the kings of the south began one by one to turn away from God. There were more and more ungodly kings who would follow Baal or Ashtoreth or the other gods of the pagans. In 588, God's patience ran out. He sent the Babylonians who, as we said earlier, put the city under siege. They broke through the wall. They looted the temple. They raped the women. They killed those they wished. They took the rest to Babylon. And that was the end of the kingdom of Israel. Now, make sure you get the point The things that happened to Israel in the Old Testament were not simple historical accidents occurring to the normal, natural course of men and nations. Those tragedies, those judgments were divinely imposed, supernaturally predicted acts of God. They were acts of God. Did you ever read your insurance policy? insurance policy on your house. There are two exclusions in there. Did you ever notice what they are? War and acts of God. I have to laugh every time I think about that. The people who wrote those policies would never acknowledge the existence of God in any other context. (laughs) But in their desire to protect themselves from financial ruin... They pretend to fear God. Going back to Israel, what is doubly sad is that their great disasters, 722 B.C. and 586 B.C., were acts of God, and yet most of the people who suffered under those events refused to acknowledge it. Their eyes were blind. Their ears were deaf. Just as God had said they would be in Isaiah chapter 6. They couldn't see what was standing right in front of their own faces. The fact that God is faithful, and that faithfulness includes his warnings of judgment. If you don't get anything else from this message, please get this. God is faithful to judge according to his promise just as he is faithful to bless according to his promise. Now our time is almost up and I'm going to skip a little something. I'll share it with you next week because I don't want to run over too far. I'd like to turn our attention now to two passages in which God reviews Israel's history. If you will, turn with me to the book of Amos chapter 4. By the way, the easiest way to do that is to find Matthew and work backwards. In each of the passages we're going to look at, Amos chapter 4 and Nehemiah chapter 9, God takes the time to review Israel's history and to make some comments on the significance of it. Now, what I want to read to you is Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 12. Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 12. God says, also, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. I used to tease Gary that that was the perfect Bible verse for a dentist. (laughs) But it's not about dentistry. It's about starvation. Also, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I also withheld rain from you. When there were still three months in the harvest, I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees, the locusts devoured them. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with the sword, along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus will I do to you. And by the way, I imagine the prophet Amos doing something like that when he said, therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. see, God sent Amos to deliver this warning to the northern kingdom of Israel in 760 B.C. It was about 40 years before the Assyrians would come in and destroy the northern kingdom. The kings of Israel had been walking in idolatry now for almost 200 years. God's patience was running out. Let's just notice a few things from what Amos says. First, Amos speaking for God says, I did these things to you. I sent the famine. I sent the drought. I supernaturally made it rain on one city regularly, and I'm the one who made another city nearby get no rain at all. Couldn't you see that this was no natural accident? I sent mildew and blight. It was I, your God, who sent the locusts who devoured your your crops. I sent the armies who attacked you. I had warned you of these things. Why didn't you recognize my supernatural hand in these events? And secondly, Amos says, again speaking for God, I did these things to cause you to turn back to me. Don't miss this, my brothers and sisters. Yes, God punishes sin. But for his people, that punishment is not merely punitive. When God imposes temporal judgment on his people in whatever form, the purpose is also restorative. Over and over, God says through Amos, I judged you, but you have not returned to me. Think of God's patience. Think of the years and decades and centuries during which he watched the Israelites persistently flaunt his law and mock him and follow false gods. God could have brought the Assyrians or any other nation of his choosing immediately to judge them. But he was patient. He imposed the penalties of the covenant one by one. He imposed them slowly. He turned off the rain with a supernatural precision and accuracy. Think about this. Anyone willing to consider the evidence could say, it's no accident that the rain keeps falling and the crops keep growing month after month here in Richardson, but you just crossed the border into Garland and it hasn't rained there in a year. It's not an accident. This is the hand of God. The evidence was there, but they weren't willing to consider it. Now finally, Amos says, speaking for God, Okay, if you don't want to listen, have it your way. Soon you will experience the worst of the penalties I warned you of in the Palestinian covenant. Prepare in a way that you never have before to meet your God. They met their God 40 years later in 722 BC and it wasn't a pleasant meeting. Turn with me now to Nehemiah chapter 9. This is a much longer chapter. It's fascinating reading. I think some of you read it in advance of this message, and I hope you found it as fascinating as I do. Let's consider the setting here. The speech that's recorded in Nehemiah 9 was given in 458 BC, right here. The temple concerning which Haggai spoke, which we'll be studying about later, had already been completed about 60 years earlier in 515 BC. Zerubbabel, I can never say that word, Zerubbabel and his generation, those who went back to complete the temple, were mostly dead by now. A new generation of Jews is living in Jerusalem and they're beginning to fall back into their old sins, neglecting the worship of God, breaking the Sabbath, intermarrying with pagans. I'm getting close to the end, folks. Ezra calls the people of Jerusalem together. Now in verses 2 and 3 of this chapter, we're told that for one-fourth of a day, six hours, the people sit and listen as the law of Moses is read to them. Would you like to sit here until six 17, the night while I read to you the first five books of the Old Testament, imagine that. And then for another six hours, they publicly confessed their sins to each other and to God. Then you'd think they'd go home, but they don't. The Levites stand up and they proclaim the message that is recorded in the rest of Nehemiah chapter 9. They review how God took the Israelites out of Egypt, how He gave them the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, and then they trace the events that brought the people up to the year 458 when the Jews are again falling back into the same old sins. Now I just want to read four verses out of this chapter to you. Listen to verses 26 and 27. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. Therefore, you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, they cried out to you, you heard from heaven, And according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. What are we hearing here? It's a divine commentary on the period of the judges. Now let's go on to verses 28 and 29. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. You testified against them that you might bring them back to your law, yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them, and shrugged their shoulders Stiffened their necks, and would not hear, yet for many years you had patience with them and testified them against them by your spirit and the prophets, yet they would not listen, therefore, you gave them into the land of the people into the hand of the peoples of the lands, nevertheless, in your great mercy. You did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Now the point here is simple. Even in judgment, God remains gracious, merciful, and faithful to his promises to protect and preserve his people. I want to finish by asking three questions And my purpose in asking these questions is to remind us that we, like the Israelites, are God's people, that people have not changed and God has not changed. We do not live under the provisions of the Palestinian Covenant. There is not a one-to-one connection between godly living and circumstances for us as there was for the nation of Israel. And yet we are told in Scripture, in the New Testament, that God does chasten and discipline his children for sin, and the purpose of that is to restore them to godliness. I have three questions for you. Do you rejoice in knowing that God is faithful? I hope you do. But remember that God's faithfulness includes both his promise to bless his children and his promise to discipline his children. We would be fools to bank on the promise of blessing and ignore the warnings of discipline. Second question, are you walking in persistent sin or secret sin or high-handed sin? If you are, don't kid yourself. And I say this to myself as well. God knows your sin as he knows mine. And he retains the right to discipline you. Let's be wiser than the Israelites were. Let us confess our sins And seek his forgiveness now. Let's not force his hand. And the third and last question. Are you experiencing hardship now? If so, it may or may not be God's hand of discipline against you. And I can't really tell you how to sort that out. But I do urge you to seek God's wisdom, to ask the question. And if you believe you are experiencing God's discipline, remember that if you are his child, his purpose in disciplining you is not merely to punish you, but to restore you to his good favor. Let's pray. Behold the goodness and severity of the Lord. How those words sum it all up, Father. You are good, and yet you are holy. Father, we rejoice in the mercy that you have shown us in making us your children. We rejoice to know that our sin can never separate us from you. That because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done, each of us who has believed in him will surely come into your presence and will dwell in your presence forever. But we ask, Father, that you would not allow us to foolishly persist in sin, that you would not allow us the harmful luxury of thinking that grace means that you will never judge us if we choose to flaunt your word and your ways. Give us a holy fear of displeasing you and a godly love of pleasing you and grant that we may seek the power of your spirit and the guidance of your word as we endeavor to live in ways that please you, that bring honor to you, that bring honor to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ before the watching world. We pray this in his name. Amen.